This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Whirlpool reported earnings after the close on Wednesday. The stock initially rallying, then ending a little bit lower on Thursday. But the stock is up, as I just mentioned, uh, in today's session. Um, a great company to talk to, especially amid the pandemic. Joining us right now is Whirlpool Chairman and CEO Mark Bitzer. He's on the phone in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Mark, delighted to have you here with uh, Paul and myself. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Carol and Paul. Mark, talk to us a little bit about, first of all, I want to take a little bit of a step back and a look back. Tell us what your world has been like uh, as a leader of a major company uh, going back to March, and then we can kind of contrast it with where we are today. What was it like back in March? <laughs> Carol, that's an interesting question because it feels like like the years away. Um, <laughs> Fair, <laughs> far I agree. memory. So, you know, this... <laughs> You know, I, I think we're a little bit in a different position than most other domestic companies because we have a pretty big China operation, which actually happened to be 150 miles away from Wuhan, and we have our European headquarters right. in northern Italy. So you remember, you know, when, <laughs> when you first had the China message, initially it felt like China contained, and we were worried about manufacturing supply for China. But then the really decisive element was when um, our president of a European business called me over a weekend and said, oops, there are a couple of cases in Lombardy. And that's, that's kind of when you realize, oops, this is big. Um, so, again, that feels like a really distant memory. But I think that's what, when everything for us changed. Um, and we, we are kind of, by mid-March, you realize everything which we thought about 2020 will just be upside down. And we don't know how deep a canyon is into which we're looking. Um, so that was a pretty dramatic impact. And then you kind of keep all in mind this. Unfortunately, with COVID, didn't come with an instruction for use right. for management. So, right. No playbook. Right. So Nobody had some, the playbook on this. Somewhat annoying. And then you you know you get all these emails from consultants to tell you how to manage a crisis. But problem is they're all right, but they're always six weeks late. So <laughs> so it was an interesting experience because you get basically got to improvise. You got to pull the troops together. And of course, the first focus was entirely about you know how do we secure health and safety because you know we always talk about the economic dimension mm-hmm. of this crisis, but there's a big human dimension, and, and you know, we're all humans with our fears, right. um, and you've got to manage a big organization with people who have also fears, and so managing the health and safety of our people, that obviously was the first one, um, but then, of course, you talk about all the business implications, and uh, at least as a CEO, I was, quote-unquote, in the lucky situation that even in 2008, 2009, I was here in the U.S., and I, I wasn't running the company, but I call it a front seat to <laughs> what we experienced back then. So you, so you took take some lessons from back then, and um, of course, first focus was how do we secure liquidity because we don't know how bad this is going to be, um, and then you start taking all the decisions. Um, so it was pretty much a rolling up a sleeves event back then in March and April. Yeah. So Mark, give us a sense of kind of where you are now. How has your business changed? What are the big issues you're focusing on right now? You know, Paul, I mean, it's first of all, and I heard you earlier talking about visibility. Um, you know, back then in April or March, and we had visibility for a week. Um, I know it sounds silly, but you had a visibility wow. for a week, and you just wow. don't know what happened. Then as Q2 evolved, you had a visibility for maybe a couple of weeks or months. By now, we see three months, maybe four months, um, which is unusual, but at least you see a little bit longer. So you see a little bit more for perspective. The way I look at it right now from... Our business and our industry is kind of, and, and zooming out a little bit, as, as you all know, there was a lot of talk initially about is this going to be a U-shape, a recovery, or V-shape, or W-shape, or whatever shape. Yep. 
And by now, I think most people realize that's increasingly an irrelevant discussion because what matters is in which cycle is your industry. Um, mm-hmm. Because everything, every industry goes for a different cycle. And, you know, initially it felt like our industry is the corona loser. But now I think it now immediately, be, immediately becomes more and more apparent we're a, co- a long-term maybe corona winner. And what I mean with that is it's a simple fact. Our business is in the home. It's it's about improving life at home. It's about washers, dishwashers, and ovens. People are spending time at home. And what we see now increasingly, that's where we're now more, and again, I'm leaving the human side of it away, which is still a big issue. Mm -hmm. But from business side, we're more and more in the opportunity side of this corona cycle. And that's good news because people are spending time at home. We're investing in the nest, as we call it. And we're, you know, just think about yourself. Do you know a single friend or a neighbor who didn't paint some room in the house <laughs> or didn't buy something new? Everybody's improving the house. And it's, not, it's more than just kind of a short-term improvement. People are rethinking the purpose of a home, and that plays in our favor. Yeah. You know, when did you realize that that was starting to happen? Because, you know, it was really fascinating, I think, and I don't know if, Paul, you concur with this, but like as journalists, because I think initially everybody was afraid to talk about the pandemic and the impact and not having visibility. And then all of a sudden we started to see different companies, you know, of course, nobody wished the health crisis on anybody, but whether it was Netflix or some others, you know, that were benefiting because of the crisis. And all of a sudden you started to see the numbers and you're like, oh yeah, I thought everybody was going to lose in this crisis and that wasn't the case. When did you guys start to see that in your numbers? Yeah, I mean, and Carol, it's, it's tough to pinpoint exactly when yeah. we saw it, but I think it became apparent pretty much around the summer period. Well, first of all, I got to step back a little bit. It's and, and we're certainly not the health experts, and we're probably already enough self-declared health experts around here. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, we but, have them know, here, it, too. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it became pretty apparent in April, May, that despite all the talk, we have to learn to live with this crisis and the coronavirus, and it's not going to go away short term. And that's when we also realized that will change the consumer behavior. And the way we look at it right now, you know, it's... Um, Hopefully, this corona crisis at one point will be behind us. I don't think the consumer behavior will go back all normal. Because think about it. You know, most consumers, or not most, but many consumers will, by the time this is over, probably have spent more or less a year at home. Yeah. Um, you don't erase a year of consumer behavior from a memory. It's not a flash memory. That will stay. People will invest in the home um, and that's becomes it just becomes every month more apparent. And we see also in our own business, you know, the initial demand was a lot what we call crisis appliances, you know, the freeze of the microwaves or dress products which just, you know, broke down because they have been used so intensively. But we now see more and more people spending money and it goes more and more into big-ticket items. Like what? You know, I mean, you talk now about the higher-end fridges or you talk about the higher-end ovens. People are really investing. Mm-hmm. It's not just with the rest and the crisis. They're investing and they're upgrading um, because they, <laughs> they all see, okay, I got to spend a lot more time at home going forward. I don't think certain behaviors like, you know, we, you know, we have statistics, 50, 55% of the people even now say they spend significantly more time in the kitchen and cooking than ever before. Oh, yeah. that, will no go, that will not go back to zero. It will not. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, again, plays in our favor. Hey, Mark, you, you initially mentioned something about the su- supply chain and the shock there. Give us a sense of how your supply chain is looking now. Um, in short, Paul, we're still supply chain constrained. Okay. Um, 
Now, let me expand a little bit more on this one. You know, we, early in this crisis, you know, remember around the springtime when, when people were speculating, well, is it over by Easter? And a lot of industrial companies shut down the factories. We did not shut down the factories, um, which was a little bit bold decision, but I'm glad we did. Um, which, on the other hand, was very demanding on our people because we asked them to come to work where a lot of people were extremely uncertain and nervous. Yeah. Having said that, it gave us a lot of lead time to learn how we can reasonably safe produce and have an environment in the factories which kind of maximizes the health and safety of our people. Because in a big industrial factory, and keep in mind, if you would go to one of our factories, some of them are a mile long. These are not kind of small buildings. They're massive, big factories where steel comes in and a washer comes out on the other side. So you're trying to get that in a safe environment. You know, and these, again, these are industrial complex with two or 3,000 employees in one factory. So you have line distancing, mask wearing, sanitization, temperature check. Um, it's a massive effort. And, and the fact that we started that early allowed us at least to get much faster in producing reasonably safe. Now, having said that, today, fast forward, you know, the fact is, if you have a, if you try to keep a factory safe, you will not get it to the same yield as pre-COVID mm-hmm. because you have to reduce the paces and the speed on a line because you have to have a social, social distancing. You will have disruptions with components. You have challenges with logistics. So no matter how hard you work, you will not get it to exactly the same output as pre-COVID. And that's why our supply chain today um, is constrained. I mean, we're not fully able to keep up with demand, which I know from financial perspective, would say that's a good problem to have true. But of course, on the other hand, we're, we're frustrated of letting consumers down and, and having them wait six weeks for, for a product. So Mark, if since you're, you anticipate that, as you said, you know, you can't erase a year of consumer behavior from memory. And, and I agree with you. I think I'm rethinking my expenditures going forward, even when things get back to normal. You know, it's very easy, especially in a city like New York, you can just kind of money just kind of falls out of your pockets, you know, but you can kind of rethink your focus. If you think that consumers will continue to focus on their homes and spend, what kind of capital expenditures do you need to potentially do to meet that expected greater demand? Or can you do it under existing facilities? Um, let's put it this Under normal circumstances, we could do it under, within, mix, within yeah. our existing network. But again, as long as COVID is around us, and you, put, you give me whatever <laughs> end date you think it is, but you know, as mm-hmm. long as it's around us, it will be somewhat constrained. And you will have on and offs, and you will have a supplier who has some challenges because they had to shut down the factory, whatever else. So as long as that's around us, we're constrained. Having said that... Um, Carol, because we are increasingly confident about the long-term prospect of what it all means for home and house, anything home and house related. We are starting to actually dial up our capital investments also in capacity in North America. Oh, you are? So does that mean, yeah. okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Paul and I just perked up because he just actually, I beat me, said, are they moving manufacturing back to the U.S.? Are you? Well, we've never left. Well, that's true. That's true. Okay. Fair you know, enough. Carol, you know, that's, when I sometimes hear people... I'm, bring sp- back I apologize. Jobs, yeah, that's right. No, no, I'm not accusing you. I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, it's, we, 82% of what we sell in the U.S. is produced in the U.S. Yeah. And we're one of a few companies. So when I hear people, well, we bring jobs back, well, we never left. Same money. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we're, we're, right now we're hiring because, you know, we, we're running some factories free shifts. So we're hiring wow. on the factories... Now, the real, to your real point is, 
and and maybe we're an early indicator, but you know we were reluctant so far to add capital on capacity or to mm. for for capacity. I think we're now increasingly getting closer to we will invest to expand capacity in North America and U.S. Um, obviously. So we're soon, kind of not soon. <laughs> Will it happen soon? Well, you know, and I mean, and it's, we're obviously right now. We're planning for twenty-one, but you know, okay. you know, we, it's not one big decision. We're like ten small decisions. A couple of ones we already took um, because you know, again, some demand elements I don't think will go away. And, yeah. and you know, you also have a broader context, Carol. Is the U.S. housing? Um, you know, we were already bullish about U.S. housing pre-COVID. Now, because the demographic trends, there's a pent-up household formation. Right. Um, the housing market has been undersupplied for decades. And on top of that, the other side is there is disposable income. As you mentioned, people are not spending money on restaurants. And I feel sorry for restaurants, but they're not spending money on outdoor dining or indoor dining. They're not going on travel. There's money available. And on top of that, low financing. So the housing will be, in our view, very yep. robust for a couple of years. Hey, Mark, talk to us about your balance sheet here. We saw a lot of companies early on in the pandemic really rush to the market to shore up their balance sheet. How's yours looking right now? Um, actually, right now it's in very good shape. Now, <laughs> let me expand on this one, Paul. Okay. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's also funny because you asked earlier about the outset of this crisis, which by now we've all forgotten. You know, people were referring to, well, COVID is a black swan event. We couldn't prepare for it. True. Having said that, the possibility of a downturn or blip or recession, recession was there already at the beginning of the year. I mean, people knew at one point there will be a correction. So we started bringing our balance sheet in shape over the last one or two years. Um, we did yeah. that already. So we entered the crisis already in a, in a pretty good fashion. And then what we did on top of that, immediately when we saw this happening, because we saw what happened on commercial paper market in 2008, we immediately went out for some short-term borrowing to just do to have a buffer for whatever happens. Um, yeah. Now, fast forward, we have right now, because business is going very well, we have a very strong cash flow. We have $3.5 billion cash on our balance sheet in September, so we're now paying down the short-term debt, which we took on just to, as an insurance. Um, so we're, by year-end, we will be out of a short-term COVID debt, and we will be in a very strong um, balance sheet position. And that's a good position to be in. Yeah, totally. Hey, just saved about 40 seconds here, Mark. What's the cool next thing in appliances? And I, <laughs> I fortunately, I have to ask you to be quick. Carol, I need more than 40 seconds. <laughs> so then you'll have to, to do advertising. You will have to come back. You will have to come back. <laughs> no, there's a, there's a whole new dishwasher line, which we just launched. There's a new top loader coming out. And of course, it's Christmas, Bibles, KitchenAid stand mixers. All right. I just want to know if there's a dishwasher that actually teaches my 17-year-old how to actually load it and get the well, dishes we, out we, of the we sink. We may hire you as an engineer if you found that way. I'm the daughter of an engineer. That might just work. Uh, Mark, what a treat. Um, and I do hope you'll come back. Good luck. And uh, it was just great to check in with you. Mark Bitzer, Chief Executive Officer of Whirlpool, on the phone from Benton Harbor, Michigan. I told you earlier, we tried to get a stove at a beach house and we couldn't get it over the summer. They're like, there are no appliances available. That is just, that's, just, that's just amazing. But that's the supply chain. That's that, exactly, that's exactly it. Yeah, totally. <laughs>